I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The United States isn't the only country grappling with cryptocurrencies. The European Commission, the European Union's primary regulatory organ, has been hard at work too, and just last week released draft legislation called the Markets in Crypto Assets, or MICA, that would go far further than anywhere else in the world to explicitly classify cryptocurrencies and subject them to a common regulatory framework. Now, if you've ever had to navigate European regulations, and especially those published by the European Union, you know that parsing through rules isn't easy, and that it's useful to have a guide. And for our show, ladies and gentlemen, we have one of the best in the world. I am delighted to have Peter Kirstens today here with us to give us a hand. And for many of you listening, you may be familiar with Peter, who was the EU's regulatory diplomat here in Washington during some of the most intense discussions on Dodd-Frank and its international aftermath. Since then, he's returned to Brussels, where he's the European Commission's point person on digital finance, policy, and regulation. He is, simply put, the consummate diplomat and regulator, all wrapped up into one. And I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast to bring those skills to the table as we look at perhaps some of the most far-reaching rules to impact cryptocurrencies since the very invention of Bitcoin. Peter, thanks so much for joining the show. Well, Chris, it's my pleasure and my honor to be on your show. I'm a listener almost every week, and I feel honored to be one of a long list of speakers on your show. Thanks so very much. And, you know, uh, maybe we can just start from a 10,000-foot level here. The European Commission has released really detailed and, and, and really remarkable rules relating to the creation of what is the first global crypto asset legal framework. Uh, what was the impetus behind this particular project? Well, the, the, the impetus really was to create uh, legal clarity and legal certainty to shed legal and regulatory light onto the crypto world and to provide a stable and credible legal framework that supports innovation while addressing the risks uh, that crypto assets may present to investors or to market integrity. As I look at it, you know, it, it's it's fascinating, you know, just how um, the commission is thinking about sort of establishing or or creating this this certainty. I mean, there there are six subcategories. Um, it, it appears of of crypto assets. Um, could you maybe break down sort of those different categories and and what they're supposed to 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 mean? The, the crypto world uh, is far more complex than just Bitcoin or Ethereum. There are many different kinds of, uh, of crypto assets and more recently stable coins. And so looking into the market and the market developments, we need to come up with a taxonomy of different kinds of crypto 
to assets because they present different issues, different risks, different opportunities. And our proposal really distinguishes six types of crypto assets in, I would say, two broad groups, a group of stable coins and a group of non-stable coin other crypto assets. But actually, there's six uh, types of uh, crypto assets. The first is the easiest, and it's the catch-all category of crypto assets, general crypto assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum, that are no claim on anyone, that reference no external values. They're just a value in their own right. Uh, they are worth what someone is willing uh, to pay for them. The second category of crypto assets are utility tokens. These are crypto assets that give you uh, access to a utility, a service, a facility. Got it. So a utility token, whereby say with it, I can access a specific service offered by a specific company. Uh, what next then? Then we have another group of crypto assets, which are um, often people call them uh, stable coins. And there we actually have Two big categories, and that is, again, subdivided because we like uh, to complicate matters, but also be, be clear. Uh, we have asset reference tokens, so tokens which are backed up by either multiple fiat currencies or by one or more commodities or whose value is stabilized by other crypto assets. Second category is significant asset reference uh, tokens. It's the same as asset reference tokens, but just systems which are of a larger size, larger dimension, where there's more, which have more cross-border relevance. And because they're significant, we will have uh, stricter requirements for them. And then we have a special category of uh, stable coins, which we call e-money tokens, which derive their value from referencing a single currency, either the euro or a, another currency, um, another national currency. And also there we distinguish between uh, general uh, e-money tokens and significant e-money tokens, so the large ones. So you have all these different categories, which I think is really interesting, especially uh, for those of us here in the United States, because it's a real contrast to um, our standards-based approach reflected in the Supreme Court case of Howey versus the SEC, uh, where we look at all the facts and circumstances surrounding an offering uh, to determine whether or not it is a security. So why is it that this particular approach is being taken? And do you think you'll be able to easily identify which of the six buckets any particular uh, digital asset uh, will ultimately fall into? Yes, I, I think that will be possible. The reason why we took this approach, and uh, we didn't follow the approach from the United States, is that, of course, the Howey test is very famous uh, in the U.S., but in Europe, we don't have such a thing as a Howey test. So the Howey test is used to determine whether something um, is a security or not. And that test just does not exist under EU legislation. Now, it's important for the listeners to bear in mind that MICA only covers crypto assets which are not securities, which are not financial instruments in, in EU talk. So we only deal with crypto assets that are not financial instruments. If there are financial instruments like bonds or digitized uh, securities, or digitized, they, are, they will be continue to be dealt with by our existing regulation on financial markets, 
or our rules on fund management, for example. So here we're dealing with crypto assets that are not financial instruments. And our research has shown, and also the research of the European Super, um, Securities Markets Authority has shown that while some crypto assets that are on the market are financial instruments, the vast majority of crypto assets that are coming onto the market do not meet the definition of financial instrument under EU law. And so we needed to have a separate regime uh, to bring some, to take them out of the gray zone and to bring some clarity. And so we have these six categories. And depending on the category you're in, the requirements will be more or less strict in terms of issuance, in terms of disclosures, in terms of whether or not you need to hold capital or whether you need to be uh, authorized uh, or not. So certain issuers need to actually have an authorization, a, a license to be able to issue uh, these tokens. Whereas for other crypto assets, which present, in our view, less risks, such an authorization is not going to be required. And then the biggest ones will actually be supervised by the European Banking Authority at an EU level rather than uh, supervised and authorized by the supervisors in our member states. We will dig into that in just a second, but just so that everyone's clear about the the, the architecture, you know, it, it's it's really kind of interesting because the 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 commission is basically reaching a point that a lot of the U.S. regulators and regulators elsewhere have reached, which is saying, okay, uh, the this these particular financial instruments kind of fall within the gaps of sort of our existing regulatory architecture in the United States. It's this question of, you know, is it a security or commodity? In, in, in Europe, it's a question as to whether or not these assets fit the statutory definition of a financial instrument. And, and, and you guys have come up to this idea of saying no, so we're going to create an entirely separate framework as opposed to, say, integrating those those um, particular instruments into the pre-existing leg- uh, regulatory framework. And that's, and that's a little bit of a difference from the United States where the approach appears to be we're going to take those crypto assets and try to um, fit those uh, d- uh, digital assets into either a securities law framework where you have the SEC governing things or the uh, commodities framework where the CFTC sort of indirectly gets involved. Yeah. Um, and, and then and then as they migrate to to other financial infrastructures, maybe you can get the OCC or somebody else involved. Um, but but when you go about and 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 you do that, one of the things that I've I've found interesting is that you're still kind of borrowing from the devices and techniques that are in sort of your 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 pre-existing sort of regulatory approaches. And what I've personally found really interesting is that some of your are, are some of the the uh, disclosure uh, proposals and and that you're looking at white papers for ICOs, for example, as as a disclosure device. Can you maybe walk the audience through sort of like if you do an ICO or something in in Europe now, and if this proposal is accepted, what does that what does that mean in in practice? Mika covers crypto assets that are not financial instruments, but although they're not financial instruments, they present many of the same opportunities and risks of financial instruments. And so the rules which we're putting in place are very much inspired on the rules that govern financial instruments, but they're calibrated to recognize the specificity of crypto assets and to also support the innovation. Now to your question on the white paper. So 
for all crypto assets, there have to be white papers. And some people say, well, white papers are a bit like uh, a prospectus light. And in a way, that, that's true. Uh, but the white paper really um, is there so that the issuers of crypto assets provide fair and proper information on what it is they're selling. What is the project you are buying tokens into or you're investing into? Um, what are the rights, if any, uh, associated to the token? What are the claims which you have? And sometimes a claim is compulsory or redeemability. Is the token redeemable against cash? That is a requirement, for example, for e-money tokens. So that will be required. Also, there may be no material omissions. So you, you must disclose all relevant facts uh, for the, um, in the white paper. And very importantly, and a lesson which we've learned from um, the ICO world is that issuers may make no representations as to the future value of the token unless they can guarantee that value. So they may not sort of say, oh, buy my token because if you look at other tokens, they've really appreciated in value. So you're going to make a ton of money if you buy my token. That is not going to be allowed. We want to have clear, straightforward uh, forward information about who you as an issuer are and what it is you're developing or proposing. So what it is that consumers or investors are buying. And, and who then would be responsible, you know, for, uh, for that 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 piece? You know, you know, ICOs are obviously were were quite the rage a, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it raises interesting questions as to whether or not a, a regulated environment, you know, would would make them more or or less likely. Since you know, after the ICO bust and and with the problems of fraud, um, they became they, they sort of fell out of uh, favor in, in in many ways. But but where would the, the the supervision then, you know, when it comes to those white papers come from? I mean, is this like a, a, a country by country kind of uh, supervision that would be practiced um, by where the ICOs are sort of floating around or, or will the EU itself be involved? For the basic uh, tokens, so the, the general crypto assets and the utility tokens, the issuers, the, the actual issuer, the person who creates the token and puts it on the market has to do the white paper. And they have to notify that white paper. They have to send the white paper to the country where they are established, if they are established in the EU, or the country where they'll introduce it. So, and, but there's no prior approval of that white paper required. Um, but the white paper, of course, must meet the requirements of the regulation. If you move into the asset reference tokens, there, because the assets all have to be held in reserve. There are bigger risks for um, uh, for investors as well. The white paper actually, and the issuer itself, needs to be approved. And so um, they have to be approved in the country where they're established because they need to be uh, a legal entity. Um, or if they're not established in the EU where they have their branches, so the regulation specifies that um, how that works. For the very large ones, of course, they may not start off very large, so they have to license and get authorization in the country where they start. But the regulation also foresees the possibility that they apply directly for supervision by the European Bank Authority. So the way we've set it up is that as these systems grow in size and customer base and interconnectivity, supervision and authorization will be taken over by the European Banking Authority. 
but an issuer on his own initiative may actually opt or choose and say, well, look, I, I, I aspire to be large scale and big, and I opt to have uh, EBA authorization and supervision directly. And so they, they can then request that. You know, it's interesting that you keep referring them, you know, to these things as and, and the legislation itself, you know, as 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 sort of um, asset referencing uh, uh, sort of uh, cryptocurrencies as opposed to stable coins. I mean, is there a reason why you know you're you're using that language as opposed to its much more common uh, designation? Well, yes, uh, um, it's a it's a legal uh, text. And we don't like in legal text to use uh, marketing language. And stable coins really is a marketing term developed by some companies because in our assessment, if we look at stable coin projects and stable coin discussions, we see that these stable coins are neither stable nor coins. And we like to call a cat a cat. Uh, and so the best description in legal terms of what purport to be stable coins, in our view, is to call them asset referenced tokens. And then depending on what kinds of assets they reference, you fall in a different category. So, so up to this point in time, we've kind of given an overview or you've given an overview of sort of how the disclosure process works and the kind of division of labor, if one will, between the national sort of federal EU authorities and then, and then the, the, the state or, or the nation states. The, the rules are not only covering sort of the issuance, but also those those intermediaries themselves and 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 those entities that deal, for lack of a better word, in in cryptocurrencies. Maybe you can talk a, a little bit about that. Um, uh, there are potentially capital requirements, but but there's also this big uh, money laundering um, uh, or anti money laundering aspect to the rules. Uh, what exactly is is the commission proposing? That is a very important part of Mika because while a lot of people will focus on the different kinds of tokens and issuance and, and the white papers and so on, actually the most important provisions of uh, Mika are the provisions governing the crypto asset service providers. Now, what are crypto asset service providers? These are, for example, companies and people providing wallet services or exchanges where you can exchange crypto assets for other crypto assets, or you can exchange crypto assets for fiat currency, uh, people who provide crypto asset advisory services, um, people um, who do placement of um, crypto assets with, um, with specific investor groups and so on. So these service providers, just like they are regulated when they're handling financial instruments, will be regulated uh, when they are handling crypto um, assets. And these requirements are uh, of a nature that they have to be fit and proper for their function. They need to be authorized and need to be supervised. Um, uh, questions of, of, for example, market manipulation and prohibitions of market manipulations um, will come in because we do see in the current unregulated field of crypto assets that there's a fair amount of rather questionable practices going on in terms of uh, liability of wallet providers or uh, manipulation on crypto asset exchanges and markets, uh, we're trying to um, um, uh, provide some more structure and integrity into that. You did mention also money laundering. Now, crypto assets, like any other assets, 
are also used, unfortunately, for illicit purposes. But MICA itself does not really deal with anti-money laundering or terrorist financing. The reason for that is that we have specific legislation on anti-money laundering that covers all kinds of instruments. It's called our anti-money laundering directive, which the Commission is currently in the process of reviewing, and we will be presenting uh, proposals on that uh, next year. And those proposals will actually use the categories of MICA and will say that all the entities which are recognized in MICA will become subject to anti-money laundering requirements in our anti-money laundering legislation. So MICA kind of sets the scope and the scene, but the substantive anti-money laundering requirements are actually set out in our anti-money laundering legislation. So, so, so how how does this all sort of work out in practice? Particularly if you're, you know, um, if you're in Asia or if you're in the United States or something, and and say you, you want to set up um, a, a wallet for EU residents, right? You know, some kind of wallet for for either a Bitcoin wallet or or a stablecoin wallet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what exactly would you then need to do? I mean, it, it appears that that you would have to then register um, uh, with a national sort of a, a authority. And then you'd fall into a certain number of, of, of requirements, right? Um, uh, but, and this would be applied uniformly, or, 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 or and are there additional steps that, that you'd have to take? No. So indeed, if you are targeting European investors or European customers, you need to register and be licensed um, in Europe. But you can be licensed in any member state of the European Union with the authorities of that member state. If you're a large issuer, it'll move to the European level. But for most of the, and as also the service providers who are not the issuers, the service providers, they will be uh, licensed and supervised at national level. But very importantly, MICA is what we call a single market piece of legislation. That means that if you are licensed and authorized in a member state of the European Union, you can do business throughout the European Union. And this is a great advantage and a great benefit. So uh, you set up shop uh, or you seek uh, your registration normally in the member state where you want to access the EU, where you want to start your business, or and, and from there you start operating. So you see you see your you seek your license and or authorization there. But once you're authorized, and based on that authorization and the supervision you're subject to you can conduct business throughout the European Union. For those of us outside of the European Union, when we hear about the possibility of registration in different countries, uh, we can't help but think about uh, the possibility or the prospect of one country undercutting the others when it comes to standards, say with offering less onerous rules or scrutiny for a foreign exchange or wallet provider. Um, Maybe you can explain how it's at least expected that that won't happen uh, in this case? Um, there's, it, it's, a, it's going to be a common standard. MICA is a regulation. In European parlance, that means it's directly applicable. The member states will apply it, but they apply the text as is. They will not have to transpose it into national legislation uh, and then apply the national legislation, which is typical for what we call directives. But as a regulation, the standards that must be applied are set out in the regulation, and they are the same, or they will be the same, throughout the EU. 
I guess the last really sort of interesting aspect of the rules, and, and they appear to apply to both the transactions and also the entities themselves, is this question of, of, of capital, um, you know, and it, which itself seems to be inspired by various facets of banking laws and, and obviously um, from some sort of securities broker-dealer kinds of rules. But, but could you just give us an overview? Like, what are the general... Um, expectations for capital? What, what d- Does capital mean the same thing in terms of the resources that you know have to be provisioned from entities that are engaging in this industry? Um, uh, uh, w- what does that mean, uh, particularly where uh, crypto assets themselves can be, uh, as you've yourself uh, noted, a-, a bit volatile from time to time? Yeah. So indeed, for uh, for those operators that have a capital requirement under Mika, these requirements will be, for example, that you have to hold a higher amount of either 350,000 euros or 2% of the reserve, whichever is the higher amount. Now, the reserve, um, if it is denominated, if, 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 it's a, if it's, for example, an e-money token and it's expressed in um, uh, denominated in euro, it'll be quite simple to establish what is um, 2% of the reserve value. When it is an asset reference, of course, we'll have to use an exchange rate, but it's clear that there's a, an, um, a capital charge in there. And as you rightly point out, this capital charge is borrowed from or inspired on activities in the banking or the broker-dealer uh, activity with similar risk profiles. So, um we looked into it and we said, look, based on this activity, the commission is of the view that that would be a, an appropriate uh, capital requirement to ensure that these companies can meet uh, the risks and can weather difficult times should they encounter these difficult times. Well, you know, stablecoins, as you know, or or asset referenced coins or however you want to call them, you know, have been very uh, sort of hot button issues and subjects ever since uh, the Libra coin was was announced. Uh, and they've been the focus of G7 work streams. Uh, only, uh, you know, about two weeks ago, uh, you had ministers from Germany, France, Italy, uh, the Netherlands, and, and Spain. They had issued a, a statement on stable coins. Uh, I, I was uh, sort of participating in an event here in Washington, D.C. with Andrew Bailey and the U.K. making a statement on, 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 on stable coins. Um, you know how how does MICA here sort of measure up to these initiatives, and 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 even for that matter, you know, in a context of, of, of Brexit, you know, how how robust do you think that they will be, and how attractive do you think it will be now that there is a consolidated approach in Europe for crypto assets? Well, the ideas which we put out the policy ideas and the legal regulatory ideas which are set out in Mika, we didn't plug them out of thin air. These are inspired on very thorough public consultation, deep market analysis, and extensive discussions with our partners in the G7, in the Financial Stability Board, with our member states. And based on this, and also, develop, and for example, also developments in the U.S., where because we meet our U.S. counterparts, also for example in the FSB in the G7. Based on that, we came up with these proposals, um, with a view to shed light on this area, which we believe is very promising, uh, and we want to support this innovation while addressing these risks. 
And a lot of market participants, especially from the regulated financial sector, have expressed interest with us that they say, well, we would like to engage more in crypto asset activities, but because of the lack of legal certainty, we just don't want to go there or our supervisors, our regulators don't allow us to go there. And we believe that this framework will provide the legal certainty and the clarity that is necessary and also the legitimacy uh, to the sector by also taking out unscrupulous actors by having requirements on issuings, on the disclosures, on the, 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 the qualities the service providers must have, on the fact that they are supervised. We think that this will really um, mature the market and make it more respectable because in our view, there is nothing inherently disrespectful in crypto assets. It is a technological innovation that is applied in the world of finance and alternative finance. And we want to seize that opportunity. And we believe that this framework will actually um, have a pull factor, will attract crypto asset service providers rather than a push factor pushing them out of the EU. So clearly you're talking about what uh, we in the United States would call a technology-neutral approach. How does that drive your thinking when you consider the risk-reward trade-offs? Some countries and some people take the view that crypto assets should be regulated out, that they should be banned. We do not take that view. Our view is that crypto assets should be regulated in. They should become part of the regulated uh, framework uh, to the benefit of investors and consumers, but also to the benefit of issuers, innovators, that will use crypto assets to either develop payment systems or to attract investments um, or to run uh, applications based on blockchains and so on. Well, then when do you expect uh, these particular rules to, to, to come in, into force? It's important to bear in mind that this is a proposal now. We've, gone, we've done two years of work to get to this stage, so a lot of the heavy lifting has been done already. But the European Commission only proposes legislation. It is now for the Council of Ministers that represents the member states and the European Parliament to agree to this proposal. So they will come with amendments and then we will negotiate with them a final text. We. Uh, we'll do everything to get this process completed as quickly as possible. If I look at precedent as to how long does it normally take uh, for legislation to be enacted, I would say that if we uh, can complete this process in the course of 2021, we'd be doing uh, well. I would like to say that we would um, like to complete it before uh, the summer of 2021, but I live in Belgium and the summer is a very le- relative concept in Brussels. You never quite know when that is. But so our target is summer 2021 to have this uh, enacted. But to the US listeners who say, well, I love this legislative process. Um, if it's like in Congress, this will take forever. There's a very important difference between what goes on in Congress and what goes on in the European, uh, the European legislators process. Is that On both sides, the processes are very long. But while most bills that are introduced in Congress fail, they'll end up not being adopted, 
the vast majority of proposals the Commission submits, and I'm talking more than 95% of the proposals the European Commission puts forward, end up being adopted sooner or later. But we hope to be uh, we hope for this to be sooner. Well, well, that's certainly uh, a sign of a very uh, strong consensus mechanism uh, over in, in in the EU. Peter, thanks so much for joining the show. This was really interesting, and I, and I learned a lot. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. There is no doubt that the European Union's new rules are going to make waves in a number of ways. First, to the EU's credit, the government is acting. They fashioned forward-looking mandates aimed at bringing transactions out of dark, unregulated recesses of the financial system, and they're subjecting them to regulation. And equally important, by doing so, the European Union is raising the prospect of a more unified capital market for crypto, and by extension, a more formidable competitor for the United States and Asia as a center of gravity to which other jurisdictions might migrate. The question, of course, is how will it work? The proposals are almost certain to take effect in one shape or another, but will nation states be willing to cede authority to the EU for, if not systemically important cryptocurrencies, at least significant ones? And even if that happens, will rules be enforced evenly, even if they are technically cut and pasted into every member state country's legislation? Well, we're bound to find out sooner rather than later, and the answers could end up impacting the very shape and direction of the global digital asset industry. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you.